be kind to the people who show up, you know, in about an hour. Okay? Just, just make space. Be kind. From Rocky to the latest Cinderella team during March Madness, I think it's just a, a basic fact that we as Americans really like underdogs. We, we root for them. We love to see them make it. I think actually there's more to that almost near universal response that we all have than merely the excitement of an upset. I think underneath that excitement about the upset, there is this, this basic intuitive understanding that we all have that life is not fair. We live in a, in a world in which, in which some people and, and some teams have an advantage over other people and other teams. We live in a world of haves and have-nots. And whenever we see that, that advantage overturned, when, when the have-nots finally get ahead, we cheer. We cheer because it's exciting. It's unexpected. And because we feel like justice has been served just a little bit. Now, of course, one implication of this is that change in the relationship between the advantaged and the disadvantaged doesn't come easily. Those with power, those with wealth, those with control don't tend to voluntarily give those things up. There's going to be conflict. It's how our nation got started, right? I mean, George III didn't grant us liberty out of the goodness of his heart. No, we, we had to wrest liberty from him. It's how we got the madness in March Madness. UCLA didn't voluntarily give up its dominance of NCAA men's basketball. No, the NCAA had to reform the rules of recruiting and begin to introduce parity. It took the civil rights movement and all the conflict associated with it to get the Voting Rights Act. It's what Occupy Wall Street and I am the 99% are all about. Even if you disagree with with the politics of, of any of those things, it is surely indisputable that in a fallen world, the privileged do not give up. They don't even share their privilege without a fight. Karl Marx described this conflict in economic terms. He described it as, as class warfare. When the underprivileged and the oppressed finally, finally rise up to, to throw off the shackles of their oppression. And when liberation theology was, was first developed earlier in, in the previous century, this was one of its goals. Uh, to, to provide the poor and oppressed of the world with a theology that would actually help them fight for their liberation. Through, through political process through direct action, and if necessary, even through conflict. Well, as you know, this winter, we're looking at the original liberation theology, the narrative of Exodus. And this morning, we finally come to the point of conflict. Pharaoh, with with all of his power, does not want to let Israel go. But as we're going to see, as we look at our passage this morning... This is not actually a story of the underdog's triumph. Because the conflict, the the, the warfare is not between the haves and the have-nots. It's not between Egypt and Israel. It's not even between Pharaoh and Moses. The conflict that we're going to see is the conflict of holy war. Of final judgment. Because this is the conflict between the serpent king and God. And it turns out, of course, that the outcome of that conflict was never in doubt. 
So if you would turn with me to the very end of Exodus chapter 6, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 96, page 96, Exodus chapter 26, verse 28. Our study is going to go all the way to the end of chapter 8, and I am, if time allows, I am going to try to read all of this. What I want us to see, though, as we as we move through this section is first God's purpose in judgment, God's purpose in judgment. And that'll take us through to the end of chapter seven, verse seven. And then picking up in verse eight and going really all the way to chapter eight, verse uh, 19. We're going to consider God's power in judgment, God's power in judgment. And then beginning in verse 20 to the end of chapter 8, what I want us to observe is God's grace through judgment. God's grace through judgment. That's, that's the outline. God's purpose in judgment. God's power in judgment. God's grace through judgment. As we consider God's judgment of Pharaoh this morning, I'd invite you to consider your own life. I'd invite you to consider the judgment that you deserve and what it would mean to escape that judgment. All right, so first, God's purpose in judgment. God's purpose in judgment. Look at chapter 6, verse 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. All right, so despite Moses' discouragement, where we left off in chapter 6 last time, despite all of Moses' discouragement, God is neither surprised nor dismayed at Pharaoh's response. Nor does he seem terribly concerned about the hopelessness of Israel, because, of course, that's also where we left off at the end of of, of chapter six. Israel's given up all hope that Moses is going to be able to do anything. God doesn't seem concerned about that at all. Instead, picking up right where things left off before the genealogy. And and you notice it, it really is where. It's we're going back the verses 10, 11 and 12 of chapter six are basically repeated here at the end of chapter six. It's like we're just picking up right where we left off. God sends Moses back into the battle. And and what he says to Moses there in in chapter seven, verse one is I have made you not like God to Pharaoh. He actually says, I have made you God to Pharaoh. And Aaron Is your prophet. The point isn't that that God is actually making Moses divine at that moment. This isn't, you know, an early incarnation story. No, it's rather that that unlike Pharaoh, who claimed to to be a God, but is actually powerless to do anything. Moses is going to perform the acts of God. What what God says there in verse four, mighty acts of judgment. And why is he going to do this? Why why is he going to perform these mighty acts of judgment? Well, we see the answer there in verse 5. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Back in in chapter 5, you'll remember, Pharaoh had sort of contemptuously asked, Who is this Yahweh that I should listen to him? I don't know the Lord, so I will not let Israel go. The plagues of judgment that were about to fall are going to leave Pharaoh and indeed all of Egypt without a doubt as to who the Lord is. 
Now, the judgment of God, which is what the plagues are all about, is not a topic that people like to talk about these days. We love to talk about a God that loves us. We love to hear about, about the grace of God, about the kindness of God, about the mercy of God. Frankly, these days, to talk about a God who judges, that's a good way to grow your church smaller. People will, will, will think you're just fear-mongering. It's way old-fashioned to talk about a God who judges. But the fact is, according to Scripture, we don't know who God is unless we understand that He is the God who judges sin and sinners. And that's what God is revealing, in part, through these plagues that are about to come upon Egypt. As we're going to see, what what follows is not a picture of God sending trials into Pharaoh's life in the hopes that Pharaoh will turn and repent. No, no, what follows is, is a picture of final judgment. It's almost as if God has decided to bring judgment day, the, the last day, forward into time and to visit it upon Egypt and particularly upon Pharaoh. You, you notice here in these, these opening verses of chapter 7, there is no opportunity for repentance for Pharaoh anymore. That, that day passed but back in chapter 5. When Moses came the first time and Pharaoh had an opportunity to repent. But now God is very clear. The day of repentance is over. Not only is Pharaoh's heart already hard toward God. Not only as we move through this narrative are you going to see that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart even further towards God. But God himself is now going to judicially harden Pharaoh's heart. Why? So that final judgment may fall. So that these plagues may work themselves out and God reveal himself to be the God who judges. Friends, part of the glory of God is his justice in the condemnation of sinners. Now, I I know that at a certain level, all of us desire justice. I think it's a, it's it's just a it's basic to being human, right? We we don't we don't like it when we pick up the newspaper and we read about a criminal getting off the hook. We we don't like it when when we hear about a statute of limitations letting the guilty off. We call it a miscarriage of justice, and it gets under our skin. Why why do we have that feeling? Well, we have that feeling because we are all made in the image of God. God is perfectly just. We were made to reflect that. We desire justice because God is just. But here's where it gets tricky, right? Despite our desire for for earthly justice, despite our desire for, for proximate earthly justice in which the criminals get their due, we don't really like divine justice so much. Earthly justice, good. Divine justice, not so much. And I think the answer is pretty clear why, right? Because we understand that, that while I, I may not be guilty down in, in the courthouse downtown, I am guilty in God's court. We, we all stand before God condemned. We, we know that because we stand condemned in our own consciences. Right? Our consciences aren't perfect, But when we consult them, we realize that we ourselves know ourselves to be guilty. We don't live up to our own standards. Much less do we live up to God's standards. And so when we hear about divine justice, it makes us nervous. And we want to turn the tables. We we want to begin to somehow blame God. God, you know, I I may be guilty before you, but it's, it's really your fault, God. You put me here. You, you made the world the way you did. You, you put the temptations in front of me, 
that you did. You, you gave me the genes that you did or the family that you did. And so we want to blame God, but, but it's really no use. We are guilty. And just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because we don't like it doesn't mean that God is somehow wrong to, to set a day, a judgment day, and say he's going to hold us accountable. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. Be you never so much afraid of it. Let eternal damnation be never so dreadful. Yet it is just. God may do it and be righteous and holy and glorious. Though eternal damnation be what you cannot bear. And much soever your heart shrinks at the thought of it. Yet God's justice may be glorious in it. The dreadfulness of the thing on your part and the greatness of your dread of it do not render it the less righteous on God's part. If you think otherwise, it is a sign that you do not see yourself, that you are not sensible what sin is, nor how much of it you have been guilty of. Friends, God reveals his glory through judgment, not his meanness. Not his mean-spiritedness, not his vindictiveness, but his justice, and therefore his glory. And we do not know who God is until we grapple with that fact. Now, as Christians, one of the practical applications for us is that our confidence in God's judgment, our confidence in his justice, and that there will be a judgment day, means we can give up being judge and jury in this life. It, it actually means that in this life, when we are sinned against, we can leave judgment to God. He's, he's better at it anyway. We, we tend to make pretty lousy gods. We, we get it wrong. We... we we, we don't understand the, the, the true scope of the way in which we've been wronged, though we feel it badly. And we, and we tend to overreact or, or underreact. But not God. I, it, God makes it clear here in, in, in chapter 7, these opening verses. Pharaoh and Egypt have sinned against Israel. Moses tried to play God himself at one point, right? Moses murders that Egyptian. It did no good. God makes it very clear here that he's aware of the sin and he is not going to be shortchanged in his judgment. He is going to give full vent to his righteous complaint and judgment against Egypt. Christian, it's, it's the same for you. Have you been wronged? Well, of course you've been wronged. Have you been sinned against? Of course you've been sinned against. Are you struggling with forgiveness? Maybe. Maybe especially because, because the person who sinned against you doesn't think it was that big a deal. Maybe, maybe they're not terribly repentant. Maybe they're not seeking your forgiveness. And, and what that does, of course, is it, it goads us. It, it wants us to get in there and be judge and jury, to make them pay, to make them see Christian, you don't have to do that. In fact, you ought not to do that. God commands you to forgive. But, but your ability to forgive in part stems from the fact that you know that your forgiveness does not mean that justice will finally be denied. You can know for certain that either at the cross or on judgment day, every Sin against you will be fully dealt with, fully paid for, fully answered, which frees you up. I mean, really just sets you free to no longer have to be judge and jury, to no longer have to try to bring judgment into somebody's life, but instead to forgive, to know the Freedom of forgiveness. Because you know God is God. 
He will ensure justice is done. God's purpose in judgment is the revelation of his glory. So that his name is known even by those that oppose him. Second, God's power in judgment. What what, what does this judgment actually look like? Well, look in verse 8 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned. And went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Before the plagues even begin, 
God gives a sign to Pharaoh of what they're going to mean. It's that encounter there in Pharaoh's palace. Aaron's staff of wood turns into a snake. Now, we, we read that Pharaoh's magicians do the same, but it's clear, the text actually goes out of its way to make clear, that they had to use secret arts to do it. You see, God is the God of creation, so God just acts. Pharaoh cannot act. Pharaoh must summon magicians, and they must conjure. What's more, of course, it's not accidental that the staff is turning into a snake. The snake was a symbol of Pharaoh's power. And right away, Pharaoh's power is literally swallowed up by the far greater power of God. It's it's a portent, really. It's a symbol of what, what is about to happen. Pharaoh will be impotent before the power of the God of all creation. And then what follows are the first three of ten plagues. Now, the ten plagues are, are organized into three sets of three, then with a final exclamation point with the tenth plague. And, and they escalate. Each set of three is worse than the set of three before it. And actually, inside each set of three, it gets worse and worse. And they follow a pattern, sort of a literary pattern, the way Moses writes it out, that highlights this growing intensity, the, the severity of the successive plagues. It begins in each set of three, the first, the fourth, and the, what, the seventh? Begin in the morning, by the water, with Moses confronting Pharaoh. One week later, the second in each set comes. And once again, Moses is confronting Pharaoh, apparently now in midday. And then, presumably one week later, the next, the last in each set of three comes. But this time it comes without warning. And it is always the worst of the set. Now, the plagues are not random. What's going on throughout the plagues is that God is methodically and deliberately unleashing the elements of creation itself against Egypt. These aren't simply acts of destruction. They're not even acts of, of punishment. It's not like God is giving Pharaoh a spanking. No, they are acts of uncreation. As the created world begins to, to return to, to chaos, around Pharaoh, as, as things literally fall apart, as, as nature itself now goes on the attack against Egypt. The Nile, the source of life for Egypt, becomes quite literally a river of death. The, the very dust of the earth becomes stinging insects. God is actually systematically moving through all three realms of creation, echoing Genesis 1, first the water, And then the land, and finally, as we'll see in the fourth plague, the air pouring forth flies. But it's not just that creation is being undone around Pharaoh. It is that the gods of Egypt are being mocked. Because this is a war between God and the serpent king, between God and the false gods. That's especially clear in these these first two plagues. The Nile wasn't just a river, a kind of agricultural source of life for Egypt. No, no, the Nile was one of the major gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And the goddess of childbirth for the Egyptians was depicted with the head of a frog. So right away, God makes clear that the gods of Egypt are nothing. That the so-called gods of Egypt do his bidding, that they are powerless to protect Egypt from his judgment. In fact, he is going to use their so-called gods as agents of judgment against Egypt. What we want to be careful, though, not to miss as we, as we move through these, these incredible events is the justice of it all. There is, in each of the plagues, I think, a, a kind of lex talionis judgment. Lex talionis is just a, a, a fancy phrase that theologians use. It's Latin. It means the law of the claw. And it's, it's the basic standard of, of justice that God lays out in the Old Testament. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, now that might sound barbaric to us, but, but understand what's being communicated there. It means that a crime must be punished exactly. Not, not more than the crime is worth, 
not less than the crime is worth, but rather always with a punishment that perfectly fits the crime. And so what do we see going on here? Well, Egypt drowned the little baby Israelites in the Nile. And so the Nile will become undrinkable, filled with death. Egypt attempted genocide against Israel. And so the Egyptian goddess of childbirth is herself, as it were, attacked and becomes a means of attack against the Egyptians. Pharaoh tried to eliminate the people whom God had said he would make as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now the dust itself would become innumerable gnats. And I think every time he was stung, Pharaoh was meant to be reminded of those Israelites who were so numerous and just as pesky. Now, at first, the magicians can duplicate the miracle on on a small scale. But you notice that they're never able to remove the plague. Yeah, they can make a few frogs come up, but, but... Pharaoh can tell what's going on. He knows the score. He doesn't go to the magicians and therefore say, well, if you can make them come up, make them go away. No, he knows where this is coming from. And so he goes to Moses and says, Moses, would you pray that the Lord would take the frogs away? God is in complete control. He sets the time that the plague will start and he stops it. And he alone stops it. By the time we get to the third plague, The magicians are completely out of their depth. This is the finger of God, they admit. They've given up, and all they've seen is his finger. They haven't even yet felt the full force of his hand. What do we take away from these first three plagues? Well, first, that judgment is not the absence of God. Judgment is the presence of God in unstoppable wrath. It's popular these days amongst evangelicals, especially younger evangelicals, to to want to talk about hell, to want to talk about the judgment of God in a softer way as merely the absence of God. They they may have learned this from C.S. Lewis or they may have learned it from other sources. But but the idea is God's judgment is, is really, at the end of the day, his, his absence. And of course, with God absent, when he removes himself from our lives, well, then uh, all goodness, all pleasure, all, all joy would be absent as well. Now, now why, why do people want to talk about God's judgment? Why do they want to talk about eternal judgment and hell in this way as merely the, the absence of God? Well, well, I think the idea is meant to preserve God's character and his justice. So, so we want to preserve his character as a, as a good God. God doesn't actually inflict pain on his creatures. No, he simply withholds himself, the the source of all joy. And what we are left with then is the pain of our own sin. That's the way the logic goes. And and we want to, with this idea, kind of preserve God's justice. You see, God is just to do this because, after all, we've all, as sinners, told him we want him to go away. And so God just gives us what we ask for. He goes away. It's an attractive view of a very unattractive topic. But you look at these plagues here and you realize there is nothing about God's judgment in Scripture that suggests his absence. God inflicts judgment. And he does so personally. He does so actively. And we are powerless to stop it. If anything is absent in this narrative, it's not God. It's rather the order, the safety, the goodness, which he alone upholds and sustains in creation as an act of his love towards everyone. Now, in judgment, what we have is the presence of God in his judicial wrath. Yes, removing the goodness that we don't deserve, but then inflicting the punishment that we do deserve. And that's, I think, the second thing to note, to take away from these first three plagues. 
in judgment, God does not give us what we want, what we ask for. No, in judgment, he gives us what we deserve. The character of God's judgment is that it is perfectly just. This is why he's glorified in judgment. This is why he's glorified in the judgment of sinners. This is, he's so different from us, right? When, when we punish lawbreakers here on earth using the tools of justice that we've been given, when we punish lawbreakers, we inevitably get it wrong. We, we are always, I think, either too harsh or too light. I'm not saying that every act of earthly justice is a miscarriage of justice. I'm just saying we don't ever get it perfect. Our punishments inevitably are, are arbitrary. I mean, so, so think about just a little thought experiment here. I'm going to pick three bad crimes. Child abuse, drug trafficking, bank robbery. How do we punish those people if they're caught and are truly guilty? Well, they all end up in prison. We, we kind of have the same basic punishment for all of them. But they're not all the same. And we know they're not the same. But it's all we got. Not God. Not with God, as the plagues demonstrate. His justice always means giving Sin and sinner precisely what we deserve. Hell is terrifying beyond comprehension. But it is not one size fits all like our prison system. For each one of us, our crime against God will be perfectly and exactly measured. And the punishment will fit personally and perfectly. If we're going to understand the glory of God in his just judgments, we must understand that his unstoppable power in judgment is perfectly governed by his unimpeachable justice. No one will be able to say, I didn't deserve what I got. No one will be able to say, this was more than I deserved. He got less than he deserved. Now, the punishment will perfectly fit the crime. It's a grim picture. It's why you don't hear sermons like this very often. But friends, that's the point. It's meant to be a grim picture. This is just the opening display. The first three Acts of power and judgment and already the, the inadequacy of our thin fig leaf of relative goodness in relation to other people should be apparent. And it raises the question as it's meant to raise, who can withstand such a God? We're only three plagues into ten. Who can withstand such a God? And of course the answer is no one. No one can withstand such a God. Unless God himself delivers us. Here's the message of Christianity. We need to be rescued from God. And God alone can do it. God alone must do it. If there's to be any rescue at all. Which leads us then third to God's grace through judgment. God's grace through judgment. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there. 
so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. When I was first thinking about preaching through, through the plagues and dividing it up, I, I thought that maybe I should just stop at the end of the first cycle with, with the gnats. But it's really here at the beginning of the second set of three that we learn something crucially important. Up until now, it would appear, the plagues have impacted the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. The, the Israelites were affected by the plague on the Nile. The Israelites were affected by the frogs. The Israelites were affected by the gnats. But with the flies, God does something new. He says that he is going to put a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. Between the people of the promise and the people of the serpent king. And what we'll see as we move on through the rest of the plagues is he maintains that distinction until the very end. Friends, the wonder is not that God doesn't save everyone. The wonder is that God saves anyone at all. This act of election, this act of putting a distinction between those he will save and those he will judge is an act of pure, unmerited grace. I mean, it's not like the Israelites were better or more deserving than the Egyptians, right? This is not a story of the good guys versus the bad guys. This is not a story of the have-nots Versus the haves. I mean, I mean, think about where we left Israel as the plagues open. As the plagues open, Israel isn't even listening to Moses anymore. They've utterly given up, much less seek after God. Now, God chooses to save Israel. He chooses to spare them from any further judgment simply because he chooses to. There's nothing for Israel to boast in. There's no, there's no merit that they can claim. God rescues them from himself despite themselves. It's pure grace. And friends, that grace is now brilliantly visible against the backdrop of judgment. Let me read again what, what Joel read earlier in the service from Romans 9, because this is how Paul reflects on what's going on here. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Friends, this is the wonder of the gospel. Not that God rescues good people, not that God rescues people who try hard, but that God rescues sinners and for no other reason than his mercy. And friends, he's done it through Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ endured judgment day. You see, the, the plagues aren't the first, aren't the last time that judgment day has been brought forward into time. 
That's what's going on at the cross. At the cross, the final judgment day is being poured out on Jesus Christ. He is suffering the torment of hell on the cross. But he's not doing it for his own sins. He's he's not enduring the plagues of God because he somehow deserves it. He's enduring the plagues of God for all who would put their faith in him. He's doing it for sinners like us. So that if we repent of our sins and, and put our faith in him, we might find mercy and forgiveness. Why? Well, because judgment day has already happened. And it happened in Christ for us. Now, of course, the question that this, that this text begs is, why would any of us do this in the first place? Why would any of us turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ? Are we so much better than Pharaoh? No. No, we find ourselves with hearts soft toward God rather than hard, not because we're smarter than Pharaoh, not because we're more sensitive than Pharaoh, not because we're more spiritual than Pharaoh. We find our hearts soft towards God rather than hard because of grace. Grace alone. God must give us the faith that we need. He must open our eyes to see His beauty in the Gospel. He must must open our, our ears to hear His love in the Gospel. Friend, if you're here this morning and and you're not a believer, I want to encourage you, he will do this. He will do it for you. He does it for all who turn to Christ. Do not waste a moment wondering which side of the distinction you fall on. Prove which side of the distinction you fall on by putting your faith in Christ today. Your final judgment day has not come. Yes, you you in in this life are experiencing all sorts of trials and troubles. You are experiencing what it means to live under the judgment of God in a fallen world. But it is not final judgment yet. The plagues that you may experience in this life might possibly yet be plagues meant to turn you to Christ. Turn to Christ today. Christian. I want you to take heart. As we. Think about the plagues that fell on Egypt. And as we think about what we experience. As people who live. In a fallen world. That is under the judgment of God. I want you to take heart that for you, God has set a limit to them. To some extent, we, we, are, we are like the Israelites. Okay? We, we live in, in Egypt. We, we live in a fallen world. We live in a place that is under the judgment of God. And that, that means we are not entirely immune We feel the sting and the brokenness of a fallen world, and it actually impacts us. It's why, it's why I prayed for people with chronic illness earlier in the pastoral prayer. Because there would be no illness were it not for sin and the fact that this world is under the judgment of God. And Christians get sick. Many of you know that my, I, have, I have a child who is, who is very ill. And it's probably going to be a chronic illness. Many of you struggle with, with, the, with the reality of the, of the judgment of God. Real pain. Real hurt. But Christians. It stops at number three. God has put a distinction between us and those who are under judgment. 
the sting we feel of living in a fallen world is not leading to final judgment. The last sting we will feel, which, which is an aspect of the judgment of God, is death itself. And unless Jesus comes back first, we will experience that, that final result of living under the judgment of God. But Christian, that's, that's as bad as it gets. That's as bad as it gets. It does not lead to final judgment. For on the other side of that last sting, there is eternal life. We awake to life forever. Christian, take heart. In the midst of a fallen world, take heart that the day will come when you look back and you see how every single thing that felt like the judgment of God in this life was but a loving Father's discipline. Weaning your heart away from this world. Placing your heart more and more on Christ. Fitting you for heaven. Because the final judgment has already been born. Jesus Christ has set the limit. It is done. It is finished. Take heart. God is at war with the serpent king. He's armed himself with creation itself. And the outcome is not in doubt. Do not walk away today wondering whose side you're on, whether or not you're fighting hard enough for God. Frankly, God doesn't need your help. The question that matters is whether he's fighting for you. And he will. And he has. In Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, as, as we think about a topic that we'd rather not think about, we pray that it would lead us to the cross. Father, we pray that we would walk away today with a greater appreciation of what Christ endured for us. Father, we pray that we would be men and women cast ourself on your mercy for it is your mercy that we need we pray that we would do so confidently because in Christ you have proven to us that your power is unstoppable not only to judge but also to save and we ask this in Christ's name Amen